0: Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Chan Rinpoche. Chapter seven, part one. So if you were creative and inventive, then you were simply doing what the universe did. Buddhists were natural inventors and Tara was the mother of invention. What a thought! Chapter 7, Euphoria, 1964-1966 to 1966. Although I'd failed to meet Papa Legba at the crossroads in Runfold in the September of 1964, the year was not a total loss in terms of what was important to me. Tara had appeared, if only once, and I'd become a member of the Buddhist Society and received their quarterly magazine, The Middle Way. 1964 saw my acquisition of the book Experiment in Mindfulness by Rear Admiral E. H. Shattuck. I'd heard about the book through the Buddhist Society in London and thought it sounded interesting. It was described as a meditation manual from which anyone could learn to meditate. I was not disappointed. I began to meditate as Rear Admiral E. H. Shattuck meditated, before I was more than a few chapters into the book. At that point the White Lady began to appear in my dreams again and I began to feel an intense sense of loss. It seemed to me that she had been so much more vivid when I was a young child. My tactile memory of her vividness was far more vibrant than my dreams. And it occurred to me that my sitting meditation practice might restore that vibrancy. This provided me with the willpower to sit every day for as long as I could. It began with quarter-hour sessions. And increased as I got used to it. 1964 had also seen the release of House of the Rising Sun by The Animals. Then there was Good Morning Little Schoolgirl by The Yardbirds and Little Red Rooster by The Rolling Stones. I was delighted by Little Red Rooster because it really was blues rather than rhythm and blues. The Stones took it slow, too, which was exactly how blues should be. And from there on, Buddhism and blues ran parallel in my life, almost like emptiness and form. Buddhism was the empty aspect because almost no one was aware of my interest, apart from Steve. My mother noticed the arrival of the Middle Way once a quarter and was worried about what my father would say if he ever caught wind of it. But when he eventually found out about it, the fact that its president was a British High Court judge seemed to make it acceptable in his eyes. He cast an eye over it once and found it so intellectually impenetrable that he didn't scrutinise it any further than a paragraph. My mother told me later that he considered it valuable for my education to be challenged by such academic writing, and that anything that would improve my English results at school could only be good. Fortunately, my English results improved, and so he looked on the middle way with an approving eye. 1965 saw my first tryout with a band, Percy Gordon, a lad from St Mary's, a school between my home and Netherfield, had got a group together. They called themselves The Applause. Percy had ideas about changing the name to Percy's Applause and wasn't shy of telling me about the idea. He'd taken to talking to me if he espied me passing his school on the way home. He was somehow impressed that I knew a verse that wasn't on the single brought out by the animals. Percy's group needed a vocalist because none of them could sing and there was no one around whose voice had broken for long enough to be able to sound plausible. I reluctantly let Percy persuade me to try out with them as a vocalist. The reason for my reluctance was that I didn't want to be part of any band of which my friend Steve was not a member. I mentioned it to Steve and he surprised me by encouraging me to try out. He told me it would be good experience, especially as the applause had a microphone. He appreciated my loyalty but said that he didn't view it as any threat to our long-term goal. So, I went to the triad with the applause, and we had equally low opinions of each other. I was a baritone who sang with black intonation, syncopation and rubato. They were a musically infantile pop group spawned by parental indulgence. Sour grapes on my part, of course, with regard to their instruments and they needed a vocalist. My voice had broken whilst I was still at junior school and so I was now well settled into my adult voice. If I'd been a tenor, it wouldn't have been a problem, but they were unable to transpose their songs. The rhythm guitarist was a four chord wonder. The lead and bass must have played at least six different notes between them. Percy was the drummer, and perhaps the best of the four group members. They played pop music, and hated almost all the music I liked. Percy Gordon turned out to be a racist, and a few days after the disastrous tryout, threatened me with a fight for having the audacity to like black music. I'd apparently shown him up in front of his friends, who were all fine young racists like himself. So I was going to pay for my near criminal impudence. I'm not interested in fighting you, Percy, I said as calmly as I could. But Percy, red with rage, shouted, I'm not frightened of you, you shit-faced Nazi. Percy knew my mother was German. I'm going to fight you whether you like it or not, you coward. You'll wish you were never born when I've finished with you. I sighed. Percy, if you start, I will have to hit you back. Percy continued to assail me with foul language, and I was surprised by his inventiveness. I was also horrified by the fact that I was about to enter into some sort of violence. How had that happened? I really did not want to hit Percy, but I wasn't going to let him hit me either. This turning the other cheek was fine for Christians, but it took no account of allowing others to reinforce their own bellicosity. I decided I'd better try to say something that might deter him. You know, Percy, the last time I hit someone was at junior school and I didn't want to do it then either. But that boy didn't get up straight away. I really don't want to hit you. But if you try to hit me, I'll have to protect myself. Which means I'll have to hit you as hard as I can. I really don't think this is a good idea. Maybe just take my apology for not being the vocalist you wanted. It's up to you. I moved one foot back and clenched my fists, prepared to go straight for his nose. Percy just stood there looking faintly confused. So I said, Well, are we going to forget about it? I stood there breathing. Breathing as I breathed when meditating, simply staring in Percy's direction without looking at him. Suddenly, Percy burst into tears and walked away. I was astonished. How had that happened? What had Percy had in mind? Did he think I'd run away, or what? Maybe he was used to intimidating people but entirely unused to the reality of belligerent contact. I was extremely glad that I had not had to hit him because I found the whole idea of fighting to be primitive and abhorrent. That was the last I saw of Percy Gordon. I was sorry it ended so badly, but glad that I didn't have to hit him. I told Steve about the incident and he pondered for a moment. You know, it might have been better if you had hit him, because now you've humiliated him and that's worse. Maybe if you'd had a fight you could have made friends afterwards. But you wouldn't want to be friends with a racist anyway, so I suppose nothing's lost. Interesting perspective, Steve, I replied, feeling foolish. I hadn't considered the humiliation, he might have felt, but yes, you're right. Although, what else could I have done? Walked away? Yes, of course. Now, why didn't I think of that? That would have been so easy. Well, maybe not, Steve offered. He might have tried jumping you from behind or something. Possible. Whatever, but the thing that annoys me about myself is that I should have a better sense of situations. I mean, I'm trying to act appropriately in terms of wisdom and compassion, and then the best I can do is to humiliate someone. Remember, Steve cut in, that I'm only guessing. Percy's probably forgotten about it already. He doesn't seem the kind to remember something long if it's not to his advantage. And so we talked, looking at the thing from various angles. Steve was always good at that, and he always kept my involvement with Buddhism in mind. It was sometimes as if he took it as a duty to keep me on track. I was always grateful for Steve's observations, and he seemed pleased that I took him seriously. I always felt that Steve was a fine example of what a good friend should be. 1965 also saw the arrival of the fabulous Miss Elphinstone, the new drama teacher at Netherfield. She wore floor-length homemade dresses, scandalous Moroccan sandals and highly unusual jewellery. She wore octagonal spectacles with a blue tint, which I thought amazing. I had to start wearing spectacles myself at that time so I chose to adopt my father's old British Army issue spectacles. They were like the National Health spectacles, but were of better manufacture, nickel-plainted with strong spring-back sidearms that were flat rather than the thin wire of the National Health type. I asked for a blue tint. My father didn't seem to notice the pale blue tint. And I was amazed to have slipped by undetected. My father was usually hot on deviations from the norm so maybe blue tints were fairly normal. Miss Elphinstone got us to recite a poem called The Congo which swang as blues swings if you hit the words right. That was something I could do with no difficulty at all. wild crap shooters with a whoop and a call danced the juba in their gambling hall and laughed fit to kill and shook the town and guide the policemen and laughed them down with a boom lay boom lay boom lay boom then i saw the congo creeping through the black cutting through the jungle with a golden track even when it came my turn to read on my own i was fine in fact I was better than fine because the rest of the class didn't hold me back. I was free to let rip as if I was singing Robert Johnson, and I almost did sing. The wonder of it was that my stammer disappeared, and I read well beyond what I'd been asked to read. Miss Elphinstone was obviously both enraptured and startled. Have you done this kind of thing before? she smiled. Not exactly, Miss Elphinstone, but it's like blues and I sing blues and so I just read it like that. Miss Elphinstone decided I should recite solo, where where blues rhythm was the operative mode. I thought it worked and had the whole class clapping in time. Even the males of the class were impressed. The ebony palace soared on high through the blossoming trees to the evening sky. The inlaid porches and casements shone with gold and ivory and elephant bone, and the black crowd laughed till their sides were sore at the baboon butler in the agate door, and the well-known tunes of the parrot band that trilled on the bushes of that magic land. I was sitting on the low wall at the girls' end of the school playground with Lindsay Golding. She'd become a good friend of mine since the first year, as had several of the girls, and we often sat and talked together. We both wrote poetry, and so there was always something to talk about. You know, I said to Lindsay, I've dreamed of doing something like this. Bet you're pleased, she replied with a broad grin. That was the most fun I've had in a school lesson. I was surprised. Well, you didn't. I finished her sentence. Stammer? No, I didn't stammer at all. Never do when I sing. A troop of skull-faced witch-men came through the agate doorway in suits of flame. yea, long-tailed coats with a gold-leaf crust and hats that were covered with diamond dust and the crowd in the court gave a whoop and a call and danced the juba from wall to wall but the witch-men suddenly stilled the throng with a stern cold glare and a stern old song. There was to be a performance of the Congo that would be open to parents and friends and I was to be the star of the show but the drama class came to an unexpected end. Mr Davies and the startlingly voluptuous Miss Elphinstone were caught in flagrante in the chemistry laboratory one lunchtime, and both were dismissed. I couldn't see what all the fuss was about, as neither were married to anyone else. The drama classes weren't replaced by another English language subject. I regretted that, as I'd enjoyed the drama classes. Miss Elphinstone's planned recital of the Congo was abandoned, consequent to her florid departure. A school performance, hard on the heels of licentious conduct, was unthinkable. Censure rained down on the poem as a work of unsound morals. Lindsay told me she was very upset that I wouldn't be able to perform. It's bloody unfair, she said with some obvious heat. I'd not heard a girl swear before, but I appreciated her empathy with my loss. Yes, I'd been getting myself ready for being on stage. I could see it, the lights and everything. But that'll have to wait until Steve and I get our blues band organised. You don't need big bum Elphinstone to sing blues, Vic. You can sing any time you like. Still, I'm really annoyed with her for spoiling everything for you. And anyway, what flaming idiot has sex in the chemistry lab in the lunch hour? I wanted to reply that I'd have been eager anywhere with Miss Elphinstone, but some things are best left unsaid. Miss Elphinstone was a sad loss. But Ron Larkin appeared right out of the pages of legend, Mr Lightning. Ron was a new friend of Steve. Ron lived in Farnham but attended Greyshock Grange boarding school as a day student. Steve had met him at a guitar seminar and introduced me. We played some blues and as soon as he started playing I knew we had a band. We had more than a band, because Ron wasn't just good, he was a staggering musical phenomenon. If Eric Clapton was God, as some were saying, then Ron Larkin had the GCMG as a guitarist. God calls me God. He seemed to play as if he was hardly trying, and his riffs weren't tight little patterns high up the neck. Ron employed the entire length of the neck and he riffed as fast at the low end as he did at the high end. Ron abjured grimacing as infantile posturing, although he made an exception for the black American performers. He just stood there firmly planted with his feet about a stride apart and commanded the entire stage with his presence. We soon learnt that one did not sit as a blues player. Unless one was a pianist. One also had to practice as if one were on stage. Ron delivered all this as ultimate fact. Steve and I accepted Ron.